Hey, I'm Rich Williams with Connect2 Communications, and with me is... Taylor O'Brien, also from Connect2 Communications. And you have stumbled upon our podcast called Connect the Two. Initially, it was started as a platform for us to interview reporters and analysts that are covering the markets that our clients are in as a way to really connect to them more, understand them better, understand their approach, what they liked and didn't like about PR, um, you know, and how they really had their process of creating stories. And from that, we developed internally and looked at what our role is and um, adopted a, our sort of worked through the process of what we now call storyology. And that's led to an expansion of the podcast. So what's, what are we doing with storyology? Storyology is the art and science of blending the perfect story. Now, this is our philosophy, and we're going to look at how companies have been able to tell the right story at the right time and show how that made a difference in their market. So if you'd like to know more about what we do or you'd like help telling your story, please feel free to reach out to us at connect2com.com. That's www.connect2com.com or send an email to info at connect2com.com. Without further ado, let's get to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Connect the Two podcast. This is part of our storyology um, themed podcast. Um, and we're starting something new today. We are actually starting to tar- talk with some of our partner firms that view the world in a similar fashion we do, but operate in a different sphere of marketing. Um, so we thought that'd be interesting to see, you know, it's not just us that believe that, you know, creating stories require the right ingredients, but it really is something that should flow throughout a company's communication um, program or our processes. So, so Taylor, who are we talking today? And, and, and tell me a little about him. Sure. Today we're chatting with Lars Dabney. He's the founder and anti-CEO of Lightning Fruit. They are a digital marketing specialist, but at the base of it, we could call it a web designer. But what Lars is going to tell us about is how website building and what follows up before and after that is a major part of a company's digital strategy. Gotcha. And he has an interesting background though, right? I mean, part of the reason we thought it would be interesting to talk to him is because of his background prior to starting Lightning Fruit. Yeah, he's actually a humanitarian lawyer and then he became a uh, war correspondent. So he's worked as a journalist, which... uh, we found very interesting, and he'll talk a little bit about how that affected uh, his current business with Lightning Fruit. Um, he has a very interesting background that we will drive dive into uh, from his growing up in Australia to traveling pretty much all over the world. Um, certainly an interesting guy and definitely a fun company. Uh, check out Lightning Fruit, they website design and... They do it for the good in the world. So there's a lot to unpack there um, about what their mission is. All right. Without further ado, let's get to that conversation with Lars. Lars Dabney, welcome to the Connected To podcast and our brand new first time ever. So listener, please forgive us if we stumble our way through our first conversation with a um, I won't say a sister publication, but a publication of similar minds, maybe similar approach. <laughs> hmm. Sure. sure. Um, so Lars, tell us about Lightning Fruit, how it came to be, how you named it. Are you a fruitorian? What's it called? Fruitopian? Fru- what's a vegetarian that just <laughs> fruit, eats? Fruit, 
Fruitarians. Fruitarian. I only know that word from, <laughs> from Notting Hill because there was a point where he was dating all these people and one of them was a fruitarian. And if you picked a fruit from a tree, it was murder, she said. <laughs> it was just fruits yes. that dropped from the tree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I have heard of fruitarians. Um, but uh, no, we, we go by uh, fruiterers, which is actually a reference to an obscure piece of Australian sketch comedy from when I grew up. But uh, <clears throat> but um, yeah, no. So uh, thank, thank you so much for uh, having me on. Pleasure to talk with you guys about this. Um, uh, I started Lightning Fruit about six and a half years ago. Um, prior to that, I'd had a career that was almost entirely in the public sector. I was an anti-human trafficking attorney, a journalist, worked for the district attorney's office and a few other nonprofit gigs in different points in my life. And uh, I hit a point where I realized that the kind of impact that I wanted to have was only going to be possible if I was really able to kind of steer my own ship, you know, and, and that was, and, and I felt that the possibilities of using, you know, a business as a vehicle for doing good in the world was really substantial, you know, that you could, you could exert a lot of, of power, uh, on the systems and on the challenges that we're facing, um, when you have that kind of cloud behind you. So, uh, at the time I had a buddy who was also trying really hard to convince me to start a business cause he had started a business, uh, when he graduated from college and he's just an evangelist for it. He thinks everybody should be an entrepreneur. So, um, so I listened to him and uh, I knew how to do web development because that's what I'd done in college to make beer money. And uh, I was going to say, it's not something you learned in law school, right? Or journalism school or no, no, no. I, I learned it uh, in, in my spare time in undergrad. I just, you know, bought some, some of those big chunky books with, you know, cause back in the day, that was how you learned a coding language was from a book. Um, the online learning resources weren't quite there yet. Uh, yeah, the only books I ever bought ended with for dummies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I had CSS for dummies. That was yeah, one of my collection. Yeah. Um, I should write and, PR for dummies. I should write that. That'd be good. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea at all. Um, I, and that that was great. So I, I learned how to build websites. I'd kind of done projects here and there over the years, and was like, okay, if I want to start a company and have this influence on the world. Uh, I have no savings because I have a career in the public sector behind me. So uh, what is the lowest capital startup that uh, I'm capable of executing on? And a uh, web development agency was it since uh, requirements there are pretty much do you have a laptop? So um, <clears throat> so that was the beginning of it. And then since then, we've grown. We've got a, a team now. We've got our offices in D.C. I'm out in Denver. Um, we've had team members elsewhere in the country as well. Um, obviously we went remote with COVID like everybody else. So, um, we've stuck with that, but, uh, we continue to do a lot of work with nonprofits, um, probably about 40, 50% of our client base. Um, and with the, you know, with our private sector clients, uh, we go out of our way to work with people who we see as doing good in the world, um, and kind of pushing it in a positive direction. So that's just a huge part of how we operate. My team loves working at the agency because of that aspect to it. Clients like working with us because they know that we care about their mission and we're actually like engaged on these issues. Um, and, and we kind of put our, our actions behind it. Um, the name Lightning Fruit. So, you know, on the subject of this, of, of uh, you know, what we're thinking of talking about here, uh, 
there is a story version of why light and fruit is called light and fruit. And it's fairly elaborate. It involves a grandfather of mine who was a pirate hunter, retired to Madagascar and a lemon tree that grew on the roof of his house. Um, and, uh, that story is not true, <laughs> but I get asked a lot about why lightning fruit is called lightning fruit. And the real answer is boring. So, uh, I, I often make something up like that, uh, just to entertain people. I'm just very glad because I also know you're from Australia that has nothing to do with the Wiggles. Absolutely nothing. Because that song was, I don't know if the Wiggles even still exist, but that song, Fruit Salad, you know, is the most inane song in the world, but my kids loved it when they were little. Dude, because, Wiggles you know, are immortal. They, you, can't, you can't kill a Wiggle. That's that's a known fact. Well, didn't, didn't the yellow one drop out and get replaced by a different yellow one? That's possible. I'm not actually sure. Is it like Menudo? They change, they, they rotate out after they age out, yeah. after the voice breaks? Yeah, okay. Probably. I'm just, I'm just glad because I actually Probably. suffered through a Wiggles concert once with my kids Ooh. when we were little. Luckily, when my middle child thought it was too loud, I got to take her out. Oh, that's yeah. fortunate. Well, I mean, that's commitment to good fathering. Kudos to you there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> father of the year that year, I think. <laughs> I think there's a mug, a coffee mug that says that. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. But um, but yeah, so the real reason is was just word association. I was trying to come up with a name for a web development agency and, uh, you know, internet, digital, electricity, lightning. Uh, and then fruit is just, you know, this is a the fruit of our labor is a good thing. Like this is a the product that we have made that we give to you kind of thing just has positive associations. So that was that is the boring version of why lightning fruit is called lightning fruit. Oh, but I, I don't think that's that boring. The fruit of the labors, I hadn't made that sort of analogy, but that's pretty good, right? Well, thanks. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, so we say, you know, the right story at the right time can change everything. And that's similar to a lightning strike, right? It's, sure. It's got energy. It's kinetic. It's... Uh, I'll, we'll work on this. We'll, we'll get you something you can say. <laughs> <laughs> I would recall back to the impact you said too, because that's what, you know, lightning, you're making this impact on these companies that you're working with. And I think that websites make an impact for the companies themselves. Um, and that's something I would want to dive into as well with you on how you do that. How do you create that impact for the companies or the nonprofits you worked with from that website? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's a really interesting field because it's constantly evolving, right? Both both in the technical sense and that the frameworks and the languages and the tools that we're using are always evolving, but also in, in the public sense, um, in the way that people think about and engage with the internet. You know, um, <clears throat> 20 years ago, smartphones weren't a thing. Um, the nature of engaging with an online tool was totally different. Um, you know, 10 years ago, WordPress really wasn't where it is today. Um, that was not, it was not the internet giant that it is now. Um, there was a lot of other competitors. Things were much harder to do. So when we work with a client, it's often, you know, trying to figure out how to turn their web presence, their digital ecosystem into, uh, a narrative tool and a tool that advances their objectives as, as an organization, you know, independent of the website, um, they come from very different places, right? Some people still have kind of very basic ideas about what they want their website to be, right? I just need to, we got to have one. It's got to look good so that when people look us up, we don't look like we're fake. We got to put some basic information on there. That's it. Make right? it pretty. Yeah. 
And um, I mean, you know, sometimes that really is all they need, right? Depending on their industry um, and depending on like their capacity, right? If I'm talking to a solopreneur and they're like, look, I don't want to spend time on the website. I got to spend all my time wrangling and rustling up clients. Um, and it's like, yeah, you know, you do just need a presence that looks good and validates you, but, um, you know, you don't want to be spending a bunch of time and energy each month on it. Um, conversely, sometimes they're a lot more sophisticated, right? I mean, I've, I've recently had a, a conversation with a, this is the first time this has happened. I had a conversation with a nonprofit called, um, the ocean cleanup, I think is their name. Uh, and their engagement digitally is so sophisticated that they were teaching me things on the call. I was like, I was like, honestly, guys, I can't even pitch you to hire me because you are doing so much right already. You know, you're so on top of how you think about engagement between different channels and people coming through the website and the analytics you're collecting and how to set your objectives and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I had a great time talking with their team. I love them. I want to support their organization however I can, but I don't think I can honestly be like, you don't need to hire an agency. You're doing it all right already. You know, your in-house team is incredible. Um, so uh, yeah, really, you see the you see the the gamut there in terms of how people are approaching their website, and then you know, when we start to think about the objectives for the site, we always want to start with the objectives for the organization, right? What, what is your mission? Um, as, a, as a business, as a nonprofit, as a social entrepreneurship, whatever it may be, uh, the objectives are always going to vary. You know, it's rarely just like, we need to sell more doodads. Um, sometimes it is that. <laughs> sometimes that's unobjective. But, um, you know, there's more related to sort of building the identity, engaging a community, building a, a grassroots network, that kind of thing. Um, and then based on that, we're like, okay, so these are objectives that we want the, the digital system to produce. We need to understand what's happening on your website, through your emails, through your social channels. Like, what are the users engaging with? What are they seeing and reading in what order? Right. And this is where the narrative piece starts to kick in because your users don't just absorb everything you throw at them simultaneously. Right. They, it's chronological, right? They, they read one thing and then they read another thing and then they see another thing and then they watch a video and then yada, yada. And so that order is like, you know, it needs to be tailored like a story. Um, it needs to, establish the basic foundations of what you're trying to discuss. It needs to give context. It needs to give you the setting, the description of the main character, um, you know, the MacGuffin, whatever it may be. Um, and, and then sort of move along towards the, the more climactic moments, right. When you're trying to actually make, make the, um, the conversion point that you might be looking for, get them to sign up for the email list, get them to make a purchase, get them to make a donation. Um, and then that those big events become part of the story as well, right? Um, and there's, there's more beyond that. It's not like, great, they've donated, now we're done with them. Um, we need to keep thinking about, okay, so what follows from that? What's, what's the follow-up? What's the next step in the story that we're telling? Um, and each page on the website is a part of that story and each email they send and each ad that they see uh, all of those are kind of part of that digital story that we're trying to craft. Um, and and by telling a better story, sorry. And then how often do you work with 
with the company's either internal resources for marketing and communications or their external partners to make sure that narrative is consistent across the different mechanisms. I mean, one of the things I've always said is it takes a prospect between five and seven different ways to, to, to respond to a story, right? Sometimes they'll do it at one and sometimes they'll take seven, but you have to have it consistent across the platform so that they don't hear a story in a speech or read a story in a magazine or watch a, a story play out in a video and then go to the website and they don't match. I mean, we have a lot yes. of companies we talk to that are starting with PR. And one of the first things they say is, don't the website, we're changing everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then let's talk about what the message is, right? So how often do you guys interact with the other stakeholders in, in that company's narrative or story? Yeah, uh, all the time. <laughs> you know, I think I think it's it's very similar for, um, for our field as for yours that... Um, that consistency is is critical. Without it, you know, you're, you're going to have a, a fraction of the impact or the success that you would otherwise have. Um, usually, at the, early on in an engagement with a client, we're taking direction on that. We're not necessarily guiding it. You know, um, we we have copywriters. We can do you know our design partners, our branding experts, and so forth. So we we can take point on that sort of stuff. But usually early on when we're first engaging with the clients because they have a technical need. So um, we're like, cool, you know, we will resolve the technical need and we'll work on, you know, rebuilding our website or whatever it may be. Um, and we just try and get a massive brain dump from their marketing team or their PR team um, to really try and grasp how we should be structuring the narrative that we're telling to match what they're already saying elsewhere. Um, as it goes further on, we start to get more involved in crafting it. Um, as we spend more time with the client, we have a better, better sense of them and their operations. And we have a better sense of like how that story is working in the data. And we can say like, hey, you know, these particular aspects to the narrative that we're telling right now, we think we could maybe improve the results by adjusting them in this, that, or the other way. Well, and it's also where that information fits in helping move the buyer along on their buyer's journey. And we do a lot with PR to help understand what the common objections are in a, in a purchase process. And then addressing those with PR, so stories about manufacturing or distribution or stories about partners, stories about channels, stories about the tech team and the commitment to standards, whatever that is that could be an objection when you're introducing a new product, service, application whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like we want to help them and then direct them to content that resides on the website to help them understand context, right? Like for us, if we can get someone and we do a lot of work that actually um, that Taylor manages in the media relations area where, especially if they're a smaller company, that's not well known, right? It would be, to me, it's unlikely that someone is going to go search them organically by name and find a story about them and their technology. They're more likely to search the issue they're trying to solve or the challenge they're trying to overcome. And if we can get that company into a story talking about that industry trend or that industry challenge and they're a knowledgeable expert, then the person looking to solve XYZ goes, hmm, that person, at, that company is pretty smart. Let me go check out their website. And then there, it's a one, you know, it's a one-to-one conversion to the website. Like we want to get people to the website so they can begin that buyer's journey, or they can right. because we never publish. And for sales, call Bob. 
<laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> right. <laughs> we always want to push them to the website so they can learn more. Um, and, and I guess part of my question for you, and I think this would be, this is why I don't interview you, your job, is how do you manage that either cross-contamination or, or narrative story when it really is just one website anymore, right? It could be their Facebook account. It could be their LinkedIn profile. It could be their, their Twitter. Like it's all the way people, the way companies now interact with fans, customers, brand, other brands, partners, employees is no longer just within the confine of a corporate site. Like how do you make that all work and stay cohesive? Yeah. Well, so uh, to, to comment on your, your original point about, um, you know, when you present a story about the subject matter expertise, and then that's pushing people to the website. I think, I think that's a really good example of one of the sort of key pieces of website design or narrative design really is that it is a question and answer structure, right? The visitor has a question and you need to answer it as effectively and quickly as possible before they get bored and go somewhere else. Um, <laughs> and, and in that answer, hopefully guide them to the next step, which is going to be another question that they have. And, and it's, so you're, you're trying to predict their questions and answer them in the right order with the wrinkle, as you point out that you've got, you know, maybe 20 to a hundred different questions coming in from different sources. Um, so that's where, you know, your, your smart design of website really comes to play where like, if you've got good, intuitive, clever design for the content, um, you can field all those questions in a single page, um, you know, or at least get people moving towards where the answer is pretty quickly and effectively. Um, and in terms of like the living component to it, the second piece you were talking about there, um, that is kind of, that's one of the learning hurdles that we often have to help clients kind of come to grips with is like, Hey, you know, you actively market all the time, right? You actively go out there and do publicity and, you know, put out, narratives about your business all the time. Those narratives are not the same, right? Even if you're the CEO and you feel like you have a perfect idea of your company and what you do and how you do it, your pitch right now is not the same as it was a year ago. It, it, should, it shouldn't be. Yeah. Because things have changed, either in the market or right. with the customer base or theirs. But but you'd be surprised or how many companies stay in the same message almost like it's a religion when, <laughs> when things have changed um, dramatically in the market. It's, it's, it's challenging sometimes for us with clients like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I will say it's easier for us. <laughs> if they keep their messaging the same, it does make the, the website a little uh, easier to manage. But, um, but you know, we definitely don't encourage that because then if we're not, if we're not evolving it, if we're not testing and iterating and improving on it, we can't show results for, for the work that we're doing, right? Like we want to be able to show the numbers going up in the data. And that only happens if you're constantly working on the messaging and constantly working on the process. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think like in that sense, it's it's getting clients to understand that a website is a, a living organism, is a living part of your marketing ecosystem and requires constant effort um, if you really want it to be effective. You know, if you really are going to invest in your digital presence and make it work, we need to be analyzing all the traffic that's coming in from LinkedIn and from social and from emails and from external publicity work 
and looking at where that traffic's landing, looking at what's happening to it, tweaking the user flows. If it feels like people are, hey, we got this one article, it got tons of traffic. They're all coming to our website and they drop off after 10 seconds, right? What are we doing wrong? We're not fielding the question that those users have. Let's you know, rework the content in the above the fold section of the homepage, just so like add a little banner that just answers one question that we think is really important to those people and put a button that links to a page that answers it in more detail and see if we can get some traffic going there and hold on to more of the, that, those users and get them to a more valuable place for us. Um, and so it's that, it's that like constant sharpening basically uh, of the site that you're just continuously refining it and refining it and looking at all of the different inputs and adjusting it so that it's making the most of all of them. I think that shows too how digital strategy can play a role in reverse for a PR agency. Because if you're on, you know, you're doing a search engine optimization, you're looking at who clicked on it and what website they went to after, you know, we may be able in PR to learn from that data who is interested in the client. Maybe it's a customer base we weren't thinking of, or we could reach out to a different publication now who's serving that. So I just think we have to like, we have to, as a PR agency or in digital marketing, understand how it flows together both ways and why working together just will make a stronger presence because the digital strategy Now we think of digital PR because stories are online, things are happening on social media. And if people are following us, we want to make sure any story we're sharing with the press, we're getting out there too. And we want to make sure it's visible on every channel. So I think working together, it just shows why consistency in this entire strategy of a company's story matters. I think that's just important for companies to look at and how we it's more than they think. And I think in five years, it's going to be even more, even more so of working together digitally. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I have a, I have a lot of um, sympathy for the, the marketing directors of the world <laughs> because I feel like their jobs just get more complicated every year and more, uh, more challenging pieces are put on their plate as, as uh, all, the, all these new tools and new avenues become um, part of it. Uh, but yeah, that, that coordination is just critical. Um, and, and without it, you're just, you know, it's like leaving money on the table. You're, you're kind of putting all this effort into these channels, but you're wasting some percentage of it because you're not actually coordinating. Well, it's, it's wasting it and also opportunity cost. Right. Right. Cause it could be, you could be realizing revenue from an opportunity that you're not going after because you didn't optimize correctly. And that's true for how we tell stories too, or how we help set up the story with the story, you know, find that right mix of ingredients to blend the perfect story cocktail. I think, I think <laughs> we should start always having cocktails in our hands while we're drinking our mocktails if you don't drink, but you know, well, maybe we'll send all guests like a, a margarita mix. I was going to say, we need your yeah. favorite, Lars. Think of your yeah, favorite cocktail while we're talking. Oh, yeah, that, that is an important. That is, <laughs> do, do I that get is, one? Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure, it's in the mail. Um, digital. <laughs> a digital cocktail. So what is your... That's, we need to ask this question. What is your favorite cocktail? I am I am guilty of just the old standby. I love an old-fashioned. Oh, really? Um, Strong choice. Yeah. Strong choice. That is my go-to. It was... I, I feel like there is a period of time... And maybe this was just in New York City where I was at the time. But when I was in like late college law school, old fashions became very popular. 
um, for a little while. And that was when I started drinking them. And then I stuck to it when everybody else moved on. <laughs> it's like me and rugby shirts. Yeah. Hey, rugby shirts are always in fashion. You just don't live in the Commonwealth. So you're, you're, you know, you're That's not true. That's true. I have, rugby shirt I, basically, I'm in style once every decade when whatever I'm wearing comes back in. Yeah, there you go. So Taylor, what is, Taylor, what's your favorite cocktail? Good policy. You guessed, Rich actually guessed me the other day, a margarita, and I'm not going to lie. That's probably, that, that might be number one at the moment, or just a plain tequila shot, but we need Jimmy. the lime and the salt. So I'm still blending and mixing the perfect ingredient. A little Jimmy Buffett in the background. We have, um, <laughs> for me, it depends on the season. Like my summer drink is a basil gimlet. So fancy. Oh, sophisticated. And in the winter, it's a, um, a dirty martini with um, blue cheese stuffed olives. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the right way to do a martini. I had a I had a martini. I have to tell you guys about this because this is probably it's certainly the most unusual cocktail I've ever had. And it was one of the best. Um, my partner and I went out for our anniversary to a restaurant here in Denver, and they had a duck fat martini that we ordered. And I know this sounds weird. <laughs> Listeners can't see the faces that I can see right now, but I did the whole skeptical. face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not judging, not judging. But um, the, the chef slash chief mixologist had somehow invented this process on his own. He came up with the idea and he basically sous vide the duck and then like used the juices from that to like infuse a vodka, which he then like filtered multiple times. He had this elaborate, he described it to me. I can't honestly replicate what he did off the top of my head, but it was like a long process. It clearly took at least a week to produce one of these martinis. <laughs> um, it was so freaking good. It was like, it was a martini and it, but it tasted like roasted duck but it didn't have, it wasn't like fatty at all, right? It didn't have any like weird texture to it or anything. It was just vodka with this amazing imbued flavor of like- What did you eat with duck. it? What did you pair this roasted duck uh, martini? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That was, I need to know. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think we got the martinis before dinner started. So so we were pairing it with no, more martinis. need to clear my palate after now. Yeah, that's a-, that's a hmm. <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I just texted my wife to ask this question. One of the best, we were on a couple's trip to New York and we were doing a pub crawl. So we went through all these, you know, pubs in, in lower Manhattan. And then one of the couples wanted to go to Italy and have a cocktail, which is that grocery store. And so we're walking and they're about 20 feet ahead of us. And I'm like, said to another couple, why are we going to a grocery store? Like, I, I don't understand. I'm like, because like we passed this bar that was, and I can't remember its name. I asked this text my wife to ask her. I'm like, because there's a bar right here. And we, and so the guy said, hey, we'll catch up with you. So we ducked in this bar and the the bartender, you know, really said, what do you feel like? And we would sort of tell you, your mood or whatever. And he made us all individual drinks that were. Was it milk and honey? It was not milk and honey. I've been there. Okay. Um, but it was. It was not milk and honey, but I'm going to... Um, so I've asked my wife if she remembers that if we get that information, I'll share it in the podcast or in the podcast notes. Um, but it was um, it was cool because <laughs> it was it was just like, well, so are you feeling this? Or you, didn't, you know, mine had having like egg whites in it, which I thought was first odd, but it was quite delicious. 
at least the first two or the fifth I wasn't yeah. really sure about. But speakeasies <laughs> <laughs> are good. That sounds uh, yeah, yeah. That sounds fantastic. So, so, what are some of the challenges or the disconnects you often see as you're working with clients on on their website design or website website plan and management? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think one of the one of the first hurdles we have to get them over is recognizing that it's not really a set and forget type of tool. And I think a lot of teams uh, in in younger companies or smaller companies or organizations uh, want it to be <laughs> set and forget. They're really like, look, we just want to hop in here and write a blog post once a month, and otherwise not need to worry about this. And we can build them a website that does that. But I'm like, look, you've hired us. You're spending a big chunk of change to to build a good website here. Um, if you want to actually capitalize on that investment, if you want that investment to be worthwhile, um, you really want to be putting a little more effort into the day-to-day -day observation and analysis and continuing improvement of the website. Because um, it will get rusty. And uh, you know, all things made of code break down in time because the code frameworks are constantly evolving and they'll abandon the old versions. So, um, you know, it's a, uh, that, that hurdle is often one of the, one of the ones that we, cause the way we approach design is very much rooted in that idea that like, we're going to keep evolving this, right. We're going to build a, a machine that can be continually worked on. Um, and so that's, that's one of the early disconnects that we tend to run into, um, and I think the way for getting past it is is usually kind of coming back to the numbers, right? Saying like, look, we want to be able to show results for you guys, right? You want to be able to show results, <laughs> whether it's to your boss or your, you know, your investors or your donors or whoever it may be. Tangible results are never a bad thing. <laughs> and but to show those results, we you know, to, to get into the analytics and to look at the data and be able to say like, hey, we move this number that we know we care about up. Um, we have to spend time, you know, on an ongoing basis on this. You know, we have to actually test and iterate um, different things to push it in the right direction because we're going to do our absolute best out of the gate here to design the perfect website, but it will not be perfect because we haven't tested it yet, you know? So that's... Um, that's definitely a challenge, but but I think we we had pretty good track record of getting there. With um, I do so have the name of the bar. It was called the Rye House, and it, it, it's now closed, oh, so cool. you can't. It's know. now just gone. Now we're stuck at Italy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> now we're stuck at freaking Italy. Um, the uh, so I think is there, Taylor. Before we get to the last hard hitting rapid fire questions, is there anything else you want to cover before we get to those fun filled fact? Factual, we have a lot of fun. We do have yeah. a lot of fun. Factual fun fiction. Facts. Yeah, fun facts. Fun questions. Facts. Yes. So, let's, so, so we have some questions we came <laughs> for you that really are going to help our listener. And we're assuming there's one um, that, that uh, gets them to know you. Of all the people we've interviewed on this, and typically we interview reporters and analysts, like we've had people that, you know, worked at Marvel and met um, Stan Lee. We've had people that, you know, worked at Rolling Stone and we've had multiple people that have been in bands, like a lot of cool things that you just didn't know, but War Correspondent has never come up. 
Uh, yes. Yep. That was, so that was what, the thing I did for a while. Mm-hmm. What was the what was the last location, last war zone you reported from, or the last story you wrote from a war zone? I was only a war correspondent in Afghanistan. Okay. So only one war zone. So just do, you think okay. being a, do you think being a journalist has helped influence the stories that you tell on the website building? That's a good question. Massively. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having, having a journalism background, I mean, just the fact that it forces you to write a coherent narrative every day for, you know, however long you're in that position for, um, is super valuable because you just, you just get better at it. You know, practice makes perfect. Um, and my ability, I think to sit down with a client, absorb their situation, their message, their objectives, and distill that into a fairly, you know, digestible message that we want to present on the website and, and the order it should be presented in to like build the case to the conclusion. Uh, yeah, I think being a journalist was just a huge boost to that and just a boost to my writing. I mean, I don't actually do copywriting for our clients. Um, but I do occasionally oh, do yeah. editing because I can't help myself. <laughs> well, I, I think it, the way you described it, it, it makes sense because a lot of companies want to go to the ending of the story. They want to start with the ending, right? And our product does this. Well, now hold on a second. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to tell in the story that is independent of the product, right? They have one, prote- one protagonist and the antagonist is usually a competitor. Um, and, and we have clients that are driven mm-hmm by their antagonists, um, which to me doesn't allow them to own the story. Yep. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's very true. I think it's, it's a, um, yeah, you don't want to be in that reactive position, generally speaking. And, and it's, um, you're not going to be able to craft a compelling story if everything in your story is just a rebuttal to some other story that the reader isn't even necessarily aware of. Gotcha. All right. So without, you know, and, and just to be fair, the, the war story wasn't in the fun facts. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand it over to Taylor and let her <laughs> just ask the fun facts and the fun fact questions fun until question. I, you know, choose to interrupt again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Rapid fire, snowboarding or rock climbing? Oh, oh, what? I can't rapid fire that. Yeah. I picked your two favorite things. <laughs> uh, rock climbing. I got, yeah, that's tough, but where's your favorite place? Uh, Seneca rocks, West Virginia. Um, uh, not necessarily the best climbing I've ever done, but it has very, uh, wonderful memories for me. Just spent a ton of time climbing there. Um, and, uh, that's where I learned how to trad climb. Um, trad is, is, uh, a version of climbing where you're, you often you're doing like multiple pitches. So it's a very big wall that you have to kind of go up in sections and uh, you have all this pro protective gear that's hanging off your harness and you're sticking that into cracks in the wall and then clicking your rope to it and hoping that if you fall, it doesn't come out. <laughs> so, <laughs> Have you seen Free Solo? I have seen Free Solo. Yeah. I don't do that. <laughs> I have, okay. I have yeah. Free Soloed in the past. I no longer Free Solo. Oh my um, gosh. But, uh, I love watching it, but I'm like, are you okay? I check in on him on Instagram every now and then. Yeah. I'm like, are you still okay? Yeah. He's it's amazing. I mean, it was, it was a great movie. There was another movie that came out around the same time called the Dawn wall that I highly, highly recommend. And I actually think is a better movie than free solo, but it, it only got like a, you know, indie theater release. <clears throat> um, but 
Free Solo is super cool. I love Alex Honnold. I've met him. Nice, awkward, oh, oh. exactly as awkward as you think he is in person. <laughs> yeah. um, but really nice guy. And uh, But what he does, like most climbers don't do. You know, 98% of climbers don't touch free soloing. Um, whereas yeah. the Dawn Wall is about a version of climbing that everybody actually does. Um, and, and it is about the pursuit of a challenging objective uh, in the face of significant challenge. And uh, it's just fantastic. Really inspirational. I'm more a social climber. Just kidding. I, that's the last thing I am. <laughs> <laughs> that can be a hobby. That could be sure. Yeah. I like the indoor ones. I free solo the eight feet that they yeah. have, yeah. The, like the little where the kids are. That is a good time. Yes. Yes, it is. Bouldering is great. I love doing that. Okay. Hmm. Next one. No bouldering. Yeah. Okay, next book question. Last book you read, because we see a, a big bookshelf back there, so it has to be something good unless it's for show. We won't tell anybody. We'll tell everybody. Let's uh, <laughs> be tell everyone. <laughs> I just tweeted it. Yeah, no, I, I read a lot. Um, the last, I mean, I, it's sitting right next to me here. The last one I read is Rosewater uh, by Tade Thompson, um, which is a, uh, a science fiction book set in Nigeria um, and is really fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I've actually, I've got like 30 pages left in it, but I started a, a science fiction book club uh, a few years ago in DC when I was living there. Um, and I'm still in it, even though I'm not in DC anymore because it's been on Zoom since COVID started. Oh, cool. uh, and so that was for sci-fi book club in, in next week. <laughs> But uh, all right, so so Neil Gaiman or Robert Jordan? Oh, Neil Gaiman with a bullet. Yeah, Neil Gaiman's amazing. Yeah, like the things he thinks like Neverwhere, and um, you're like, well, how did that come to your mind? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. He's so creative. He's so creative. Um, yeah. And I book, American, book one of the American gods is phenomenal for me. Oh yes, yeah. I, I, I like Neil a ton. I'm. I've read through the series a couple of times and I, I, you know, I was very frustrated when he wouldn't finish it. Um, and then he died. And so oh. then they brought the other guy, he brought the other guy in to finish it and it was, you know, then it felt like it was getting stretched into multiple books for commercial reasons, much like, uh, like the, um, uh, Game of Thrones. Game like of he, Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> he still hasn't written the last book. No. No, he's, if book six, he's already said, is probably going to be two books. And it's just like, yeah. we're never seeing the end of that one. No, we'll never um, see one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I absolutely love Neil Gaiman. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, Richard, we, we could do a separate podcast just trading sci-fi and fantasy Rex. <laughs> and, and, Neil, and he has responded to a tweet I sent him once. That's oh, my thing. That is, you yeah. won the internet. <laughs> yeah, well, just, just one. <laughs> I also had Daryl Green respond to a tweet from uh, the Redskins, who I'm a fan of. Nice. Now the Commanders. Commanders. Yes. When they have bad seasons, they'll be the Washington Commies. That's going to be the first. They're the already first. making those jokes everywhere. I know. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no one thought that through. Like that's that's step one. That's like kindergarten stepping. But, okay. <laughs> no. no. Um, all right. So what's next? All right. We have favorite song that they play at weddings. What one will make you go on the dance floor? But also, which one will make you sit down? 
And just because oh. many pictures on your Instagram account are you at weddings. Yeah, Rich talk to you too, not just me. <laughs> I'm like, dude, who, uh, who doesn't even know that's not married? Uh, that's really <laughs> funny. My um my my fiance has commented on the fact that um when we first started dating, she was like, Who is this? Who is this woman that he's constantly with in these pictures at all these weddings? <laughs> It's like it's my. Oh wait, cousin. hold on a second. Whoa, 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 huh? Oh, oh, that's creepy. It's it's my cousin because I I only use Instagram at weddings because I'm just not much of an Instagrammer. But you know, yeah. when they have a hashtag, I want to share some of the have the pictures for the bride and groom, and it's also kind of fun for an evening, you know, to kind of get into it, taking some silly pictures. So um, that is why my Instagram account is only wedding photos. Um, and so and wedding song. Of, uh, oh, so this. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, okay, so the uh, wedding song. Um, gosh. Like Backstreet's Back. That would be on the dance floor. We didn't see this coming. Okay. I did yeah. not see that coming. I and, I, I, and I have to say, I'm slightly, I'm slightly disappointed. <laughs> I need to know your favorite band now. I need yeah. I need to know more about well, your music. Taste. So the yeah. thing is, most of my music taste wouldn't show up on a wedding playlist. Um, like okay. you know, John Butler Tree. If there was one song that was going to make me like lose my mind and just like run screaming to the dance floor, uh, it would be something by John Butler Trio. But out, outside of Australia, that's not going to make it to a wedding playlist. Um, in Australia, it probably would be on most wedding playlists. I would bet, but um, he's not as well known over here. Um, uh song that will make me leave the dance floor uh gosh this is a bit of a loaded answer anything by michael jackson um i can't okay, no, okay. that's that's been that's anything been really that requires a line I, I dance to, for me. To, oh there you go <laughs> anything that requires people to dance in tandem yeah yeah not for me yeah i went uh line dancing here in denver for the first time uh, a few months ago and it was great actually i had a great time <laughs> really? it was i mean it was like this place called grizzly rose that's this it's legit and and the crowd there is substantially like they're not from it's not like denver hipsters it's country folks who come into denver to go to grizzly rose for the night and line dance and drink beer and uh and they've got, you know, the mechanical bulls. It's like this huge space and bulls and nice. all the, the dance floor. And last, there's a section the for throwing thing. lassos at, at plastic cattle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Connecticut. I don't think I could ever find that. But Ridge, North Carolina, you don't go out line dancing out there? I don't. No, I'm sure people do. Like there's a country bar, I think, in the area, but I have never been. I think my okay. wife has been now, but I've never been. So, I gotta say, if you're in Denver, I would put Grizzly Rose on on the list of things to check out. I've never experienced anything like it. I mean, I didn't grow up in the U.S. really, so uh, a yeah. lot of Americana culture is still kind of novel to me. But um, but I thought Grizzly Rose was pretty amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, we could talk a little bit about Australia then, because um, Rich added this one here: one Aussie joke that you could die happy if you've never heard again. An Aussie joke that I don't want to hear again. Oh, man. Um, so, Australian humor, 
No, no. I mean, this is a joke that Americans would come to you and say oh, because they hear oh, you're in Australia. Oh, okay. I thought I thought it was an Australian joke too. No, okay. no, no. Like so, as an no, Australian. Okay, no, okay. Oh, okay, okay, you know, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And Americans go, "Hey, you throw another on the Barbie, yeah. mate." Yeah, yeah, exactly. That one, actually, I mean, but I shrimp on the Barbie. Barbie. Yeah, shrimp on the Barbie all the time, all the time. Yeah, and and it is. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, they don't even call them shrimp; they call them prawns. <laughs> And it's not even a joke. It's not, it's not amusing to anyone. Even the person saying it feels like a tool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So no one asks you if you know Chris Hemsworth? I mean... Which, by the way, do you know Chris Hemsworth? I, I sadly do not know Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> I, I I know none of the none of the Hems why. Um. That, is, that is disappointing. That is disappointing. <laughs> I assumed Australia was just like one little neighborhood, right? I mean, and I think it's, it, there is a bit of that factor. Like, I, I don't... I never personally met him, but I'm only like two degrees of separation away from Heath Ledger, who went to a school uh, in, in my hometown in Perth. Um, wow. I mean, he's from Perth and uh, he went to Guildford, which was a school that we competed against in sports and all this kind of stuff. But he was a bit older than me. So um, I didn't ever yes. personally meet him. Sandra Bullock cheered against me in high school. Really? Yeah. Nice. She went to my rival high school and she cheered against me. Like, not me personally, but, you know. Well, actually, she did. She's like, that guy. But, well, then I was Drop a friend. One of, my, yeah, one of my best friends from, a, from growing up was a girl who went to that rival high school and two of her best friends were cheerleaders. And so when I was a freshman and sophomore playing JV, they would, they were varsity cheerleaders. They would come to the JV games just to shout at me because I'd known them forever. Right. They were, so they would like, and I would, and like, I remember got called out of the game one time because my coach was like, stop listening to the stands. Cause they'd be like, Richard. And I would look (laughs) like, it it was like, have lost all, you know, cute cheerleaders call your name and look. I mean, um, and I, I won't swear that she was ever part of that because I don't know, but I know that the two that were for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's funny. Um, okay. There's a last from me. You've been everywhere. I, I feel after this conversation, we've talked about DC, Denver, Australia, but what Afghanistan. Is, Afghanistan. Thank you. Oh my gosh. The best city or Stay, go go with your gut here, but the best place you've ever lived and why? Mm, mm. So that that's an interesting one because it's very contextual, right? Like it depends on the point you're at in your life to a certain extent. Um, but uh, gosh, it's like it's either New York City or it's Perth and they're like exact opposites. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll go with Perth because everybody knows about New York and why it's great. Um, but uh, Perth is this little town. I mean, this is where I grew up, right? So I moved there when I was seven. Um, mostly grew up there, a little bit of time in Germany, a little bit of time in the UK um, before coming back for college. <clears throat> and um, so Perth is this like 1.6 million person country town. <laughs> um on the on the western coast of australia and like the middle of australia doesn't really have anything in it um so it is the most isolated city in the world that is a fact um the closest city is uh if you don't count adelaide it's jakarta in indonesia i think um and uh but because it's so isolated nobody ever goes there which is a downside it's you know kind of cut off a little bit behind the times in a lot of ways uh but it is pristine 
Like the beaches are gorgeous. The town, the whole area is just absolutely beautiful. Um, the bush around it is is stunning. The Wine River to the south, Margaret River, Margaret River um, is got incredible surfing, vineyards, these forests that you've never seen anything quite like them. So look up a Cary forest when you have the chance. K-A-R-R-I. Um, they're unlike any other forest you've seen. Um, looks like Lord of the Ring elves should be living there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I just, it, it was paradise. It was a beach paradise. And, um, you know, very few, like everybody's like living a happy life there. And as a place to grow up, it was amazing. So, um, I really, really have a fond spot in my heart for birth. Sounds incredible. Now I've added it to my list. So thank you for sharing that description. And just so we're clear, it's not the Perth where the dragons are, right? Not Anne McCaffrey's Perth? Uh, no, I think that is Perth, Scotland, which it's named after. No. <laughs> I did not know that. I said I didn't know the Perth, Scotland thing. I just well, do the Anne McCaffrey books. Yeah, just to I go back she, to our sci-fi thing. Yeah, yeah. I think she, I, I mean, I think she got it, the name from Perth, Scotland. But um, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, no, no dragons in 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 WA. Um, just uh, lots of great white sharks. I mean, that, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's costs sometimes to living in paradise, and uh, one to two people get the dragons by a shark per year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, well, and it's just like you know, people just take it in stride. It's like I mean, it's nobody's happy about it, but it's like look, the sharks were there first. We're the ones getting in their yeah. ocean, so you know. Every so often, somebody gets munched. Yeah. Snack delicious. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that, that wraps up the podcast. So, I, you know, I, unless there's something else you want to cover, I think we've spent 50 good quality minutes with you. Um, we don't want to stretch it and then have some bad minutes in there. Fair. So I think, uh, I think we've uh, exhausted this conversation for now. I'd certainly love to have you back on and you know, down the road and recap and maybe talk about some of the clients you're working with and what's... Yeah. Um, what's new and changing in the ever evolving world of web or web world. Absolutely. Web yeah, this, this was a pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. All right. See you Lars. Have a good one guys. <laughs> bye. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Lars. I'm so glad we brought him on and, and had him as our first, not mostly test case, but our first guest in this new, um, part of the storyology series. So what, what I enjoyed learning about was certainly his past and his approach to, to building websites, but just the, the, the whole aspect of how a website has to do with the buyer's journey and, and, and also how they handle integrating all the different ways companies today interact with all of their audiences. And those are partners and prospects and investors and, um, uh, employees, right? There's, there's so many social platforms that have to, that can be a gateway into your website and just how they handle those. And, um, I thought it was interesting. So what about you, Taylor? What'd you take from the call for the conversation? Sure. Following up on that, I think it's interesting how websites also interact with a PR agency or marketing teams and, uh, the other parts of the story, how they align. So what I really took from Lars is when you're building a website for a company, you're not just dropping it and walking away. It's going to grow, it's going to evolve and change, and it's going to work together one way and the opposite way with the company's storylines. So it was really interesting from our perspective to get to discuss that with him today. 
Cool. So um, what are some last final thoughts we have for our listeners? Well, we want to thank Lars for joining Connect the Two podcast today and remind our listeners to please like and subscribe. Uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at connect to underscore C-O-M-M. And let us know if you like today's podcast and if you have any other ideas for guests that we could bring on, especially from this sector in the uh, agency world or editors, uh, journalists, and um, other ideas for the Storyology series. All right, everyone, thank you for joining. And we'll talk to you next time on this Connect the Two podcast.